Is this microphone live for Ken to come and to read? Ken, would you like to come? And then, Joe, you're coming as well. Beside him again, I think. Thanks, Ken. It's lovely to see everybody's faces. <laughs> uh, normally we're looking at backs of heads, and some of you I haven't seen the front of you for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true what Chas said, that I have been praying for revival for a lifetime. And at the age of 92 years old, I'm still praying for God to come in revival. Hallelujah. And I'm saying to him, well, I don't know how much more time I've got, so please make it happen soon. <laughs> And we're reading from the account of Pentecost in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, and beginning to read at verse 1. Now hear these words. They are stark. They are authentic. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard the, their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit 
in those days and they will prophesy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Amen. Amen. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Um, I only have two sermon jokes, okay? And this one is the most suited to today. Um, I was preparing for the words I was going to speak, and I was saying to Joe, I want to put more fire into my sermons. Quickly, she said, you should put more of your sermons into the fire. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I love the Lord. And although I fail him so often, yet today it's my privilege to speak of the wonderful, loving presence of the powerful Holy Spirit. Later in the service, as we'll go into a, a longer time of worship, which I hope you'll just rest into, to sing, to stand, to sit, there will be an opportunity for prayer, should you like to take that opportunity with the laying on of hands. And I've asked Ken and Jude, where's Jude? Jude, to be in the corner over there during that time of five or six songs. And Joe and I will be down there as well. Then towards the end of that, I will ask God's blessing on us. And that's the sort of pause point. I know that some of you might need to move to go off to be with family or friends. Half term is here. It's glorious sunshine. But we'll keep that time then where coffee starts for those who would like coffee. Uh, to still have prayer ministry if people would like it. So let's do it slightly differently. Pentecost was a day when the church was born and the disciples were deeply uh, awe-inspired by what was happening. It wasn't what they were used to. So please, allow God to do something that we're not perhaps always accustomed to, but who uh, he is always ready to touch. Well, the Holy Spirit, and just very briefly... In the Old Testament, we read of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, but who comes upon particular people, individuals, God's people, yes, the Jews, for particular tasks he's asking them to accomplish at a particular time. So to Isaiah, the prophet, he prophesied the coming of the one, of his own bloodline, upon whom the Spirit would rest in power, he was looking far forward without knowing it to the coming of Jesus. Then, of course, there was Gideon. You might remember him in the book of Judges, chapter 6. He was called against his natural abilities to leadership. And the task God gave him to defeat the enemy, he cringed and shied away from it. But we read, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet Summoning his troops, he became bold. But the promise of the Spirit came upon individuals. But in the days of the new covenant, of the days of Jesus and the church, the promise was that the, God, the Spirit would come upon all God's people for many tasks, not just those one or two who were called at particular times, but the Spirit to come and to remain to dwell. Well, in the fulfillment of the Lord's prophet's promise for the prophet Joel, as we've heard in our first passage, I will pour out my spirit in the last days on all people. 
Sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men, not sure which category I'm in here, will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, and boys and girls, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Hundreds of years before, Joel saw what the Lord was going to do. Now, I know that Chris is very keen, and many of us are with her, but it's not quite the right season for us to undergo the Alpha course, where there is three sessions on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the things that I've mentioned will be explored far more deeply. But the beginning of the book, of the chapter we've heard read, when the day of Pentecost, and in the King James Version, had fully come, they were all together in one place, up to 120 disciples, as in Acts of early chapter 1.15 says, about 120 disciples with the 12, men and women. Now, the disciples, certainly we read, were in a room part of the time after Jesus had promised them the Spirit would come. But it says on this day they were all together in one place. We don't know quite where. But this, I like to think, is what Barton feels like. Perhaps in a room large enough for 120 people, maybe exactly this size. And a little bit more of that to come. But what does it mean when the day of Pentecost had fully come? Well, Pentecost, there's a little bit of teaching and many people know all these things, comes 50 days after Easter and 10 days after the Ascension. So we've had Easter, go on 40 days, the Ascension, and then a further 10 days, Pentecost, the birthday of the church. Now for the Jews, who we heard had gathered from all around the known world, this festival is called Shavuot, and it means for the Jews, the time that they receive the Torah, the law, on Mount Sinai, and Shavuot is one of the Jewish harvest festivals, also known as the Festival of Weeks. Why? Well, Shavu means week. A week, of course, is seven days. So Shavuot is a week of weeks. So do your maths. Seven times seven equals 49, 50. And that's why uh, these different festivals. But it was a time when they came from far and wide to Jerusalem, one of the three pilgrimage festivals. So there were many, many people there. The Lord's timing was perfect because they would take the gospel back out to the places from whence they'd come. They'd carry the spirit with them. But they'd come together to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. That was this first agricultural festival. Seeds had been planted some weeks before. And as a crop, a young crop started to emerge. Think of new potatoes in this country. Okay, plant them on Good Friday. They're starting to come now. Um, they were brought as an offering, but also of oil and honey and wine and all sorts of things. But that's why they found themselves in Jerusalem on that day. So Acts 2, 5, now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. Little do they know what was about to happen. God will always surprise you. He surprised me many times. And in a sense, that is what Pentecost is to us as Christians, as believers. Those believers in Jerusalem on that momentous day, if you think about it, the new Christians were the first fruits of the great harvest that was just beginning. 
Think back to Passover and Exodus. They were a foreshadowing. Passover of Good Friday and Exodus of Easter, when we're liberated from captivity because of the resurrection. So Shavuot was a foreshadowing of Pentecost. Today is our birthday. The Lord always links up things he's taught and shown to his ancient people as he brings it on into the newness of the new covenant. Today, our birthday. But let's think for a moment of the disciples and those strange, tantalizing resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples that came before Pentecost. Can you imagine how the disciples must have felt when they experienced the risen presence of Christ as he came to them in an upper room like this? This is a fantastic church building, but it is not the church you are. But it's a good way of thinking about it. How did they feel? Amazed, awestruck, fearful, terrified, bewildered, confused. So when people say to me they're full of fear, well, other disciples have known that too. And you might be in fear in a part of your heart now. The spirit that the Lord gives us is not a spirit of fear but a spirit of the knowledge of the awesomeness of God and fear of the Lord in that way, but not fear of him. And remember that lovely passage that Ken read from The Wind and the Willows when uh, Ratty asked Moli, or Moli asked Ratty, are you afraid of him? Afraid of him? No, never. The best piece you could possibly read, Ken, in preparation for this. Perhaps they were paralyzed. No one had ever experienced anything like it before. I wonder if you're experiencing something or wondering if you will in your lifetime experience something the like of which you've never seen before. Don't be fearful, but ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. Yes, to comfort and strengthen you, but to lead you into the river we sang about. Well, as Jesus returns, ascends to the Father, the joy of the biggest coronation party overflows from the heavens. The sun has come home from heaven to earth. Think of the teaching that Jesus gives about the prodigal. Jesus isn't a prodigal, but he's in a far land. And as he comes home, the joy of the Father who kills the fatted calf, poor old fatted calf, and a wonderful celebration follows. Pentecost is the overflow of a powerful life of God onto the earth, and the church is born. And what's more, heaven's overflow of joyful fellowship to disciples isn't just for them. The Holy Spirit who baptizes. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? It's a word that means has a bucket of water. Have you been drenched with the Holy Spirit? The joyful life of the Spirit who creates the fellowship, the word koinonia. We're not a group of individuals, as Chris has been reminding us, but of oneness in the spirit. We are the family of God and its expression here on this hill. The joyful life of God will also overflow. A particular house, on a particular Jerusalem street, for them only? No, it's for all the people. 
and particularly that day to the gathered God-fearing Jews. Acts 2.41, as some 3,000 were added to the disciples' number that very day, following Peter's preaching, but and his call to repentance, that they would confess their sins, but they would then turn into a new direction. They let their minds be redirected. We're constantly in a need to have our minds redirected, that we keep up where God is going. It will mean change. It's why we've put the chairs different for today, clearly. But please can we return to those earlier days before this great day of the church's birthday. Days in which Jesus had appeared to them, in many times in different places, of which some are shown us in the Gospels. After his resurrection, we find that the disciples are together, but not really knowing what to do next. Because we always think, what should I do now? I'm used to taking initiative. What would I need to do? Even though between Jesus' resurrection and this moment of his ascension that took place 10 days before Pentecost, he had told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. So it can't have been once or twice. And he's always said that he was John the Baptist, and he spoke of Jesus. He is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be drenched, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Can somebody get me a bucket of water? No, sorry. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wait. I know that many of you are waiting on God in prayer. Wait, though, more for the equipping you will need. Then you will be fishers of men, his first call to them. Then you will be fruitful. Then there will be a catch, a harvest. But wait until you receive. You often see people standing in this posture to show their waiting to receive the gift of the Spirit. But it was an emphatic command. Wait. Jesus himself had received the gift of the Spirit at his baptism. When John said, I saw the Spirit descend on him in bodily form, like a dove. But then we're told, in the wilderness, he goes into that place of purifying, of listening. But we're told he goes into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. But at the end of those 40 days, he returns to Galilee to teach, to heal, to proclaim. But Luke has turned the word into not the fullness of the Spirit, which you thought might have been enough. No, in the power, the dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite, the dynamite of the Holy Spirit, the explosive power of the Spirit. And things begin to happen. And you know the Gospels. In a, sovereign, in a sovereign outpouring of God's presence at the first Pentecost, all this gifting was poured out upon the disciples. And as our lovely video showed, I thought the guy could have smiled a bit, Peter, when he went to the temple. You know, but I haven't got anything. But... That amazing miracle of healing. 
But in their bewilderment, the disciples are caught between the resurrection and Pentecost and the ascension. In their bewilderment, the following account tells us of what they were doing. They were still together. This is one of the incidents. And Joe's just going to read this section from John chapter 21. It's a familiar story. So the resurrection has happened. Now, this is what follows. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Thank you, Joe. I went up on Dartmoor in preparation for this sermon two weeks ago to fish a small trout stream. Rosie, did I catch anything? No. Got bitten by a few mosquitoes and a few stinging nettles. Got me too. And you know what? I came back feeling quite well, disappointed and fed up in myself because you always think it's your own fault. But imagine how they felt. I wonder how they felt. They were overawed, clearly. They must have felt quite small as well. But the day of Pentecost was coming and this like a first fruit the power of the spirit has always been moving through jesus but in that word cast your nets sometimes there's a word of command before something happens and we have to respond to it so let's take a look at ourselves to see how things tend to go with us i'm going to go fast for this section i remember somewhere back in my childhood and early teens, a question I was often asked and asked myself, what do you want to do to be when you grow up? For a period it was a vet. All in time, uh, uh, my sister's boyfriend came to the house, was training to be a vet, and he started to describe to me some of the horrible procedures a vet had to do. He said, describe something about an arm and things like that. And unfortunately, he didn't then say to me, don't worry, it's okay. So I gave up that sense of wanting to be a vet. I wish I hadn't really. But we all have to work for reasons of financial security, to provide for ourselves and for others. We're used to taking matters, listen carefully, into our own hands and to be someone independent. Our work can be the way that I think erroneously we tend to define who we are. I'm a postman. I'm a vicar. Well, I was. I'm a teacher. I'm a double glazing advisor. Have we got any double glazing advisors in this morning? Phew, thank goodness for that. I was privileged to go off to university. I put off a full-time job that I would later do for someone else. But it was at university that I became a Christian. Now, 
I'm not going to talk about that too much, but in those days of the 1970s, many denominations, and unfortunately there are far too many, were being awakened again to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Some preachers began to identify that the third person of the Trinity had become the forgotten member of the Trinity. Churches were just going on doing their own thing, preaching well, singing hymns well, communion well, visiting the sick well, and all those wonderful, important ministries. But there was not that dunamis of the presence of the Holy Spirit invited into the fellowship. It was a time that many of us who live, Roger, through those periods, know as the charismatic movement. Do you remember? That comes from the Greek word charis, or gifts, charisms, as many of the gifts of the Holy Spirit were being discovered. Healing. Speaking as we saw the first disciples did in other languages, tongues. Prophecy began to be heard again. There was a new impetus and a boldness, a drive for evangelism, works of mercy to the vulnerable, the mission of God with his people. Exciting times. Put your hand up if you remember the well-known David Watson. David Watson? Seven of you. That's biblical. That's good. John Wimber. Hands up. Have you ever heard of John Wimber? Yes. Well, returning to the theme of work. Those were exciting times. Work for us usually means turning up at a place at a particular time. It's changed like with COVID. Okay. You can stay in bed, James, and work at home. I know. Doing things as directed by a boss or the expectations of an organization. Staying as we did for eight or nine hours. Looking forward to tea and lunch breaks. Oh, how long is it? And the paid holidays. I've got me 23 weeks. Oh, you'll get four weeks next year plus bank holidays. Cash in a brown envelope. Do you remember those days at the end of a week? Or for some occupations, a salary at the end of the month. Some of us loved our work and have had a good choice of options. Some of us hate it and often change our jobs. Or perhaps for health reasons, for many reasons. Can't get a visa, can't work, and there are fewer choices. I wonder what about you? But whether we're going out to paid work or not, whether you're working as a volunteer, even if you're not, as it were, working, you actually are and have been all your life. As you lift a cup of tea, you are working. Whenever you're thinking or relaxing, you're actually using energy even when you're not aware of it. So those of you who think you're not working because you're at home, you're working. From the whole of your birth through to your very last day, you need calories which will be burnt off so that you may work. Think of work like that, broadening it out. We have the capacity to be creative, to get things done, to dig a garden, to plant a banana in a hole, James. Thanks for that last night. It's the time to put your bananas out, folks, okay? Making things look good around the house, the garden, to chop wood for a fire, to cook a meal for friends, for the family, to carve a piece of wood, to make a cake for a garden open afternoon. Second notice. To paint a picture, to make a flag, to haul up a net and catch some fish. So a farmer can plow a field, plant a crop, and encourage the right conditions in hope of a good harvest, in hope, for which he then must work to bring in. But stop, 
There are so many things he can't control. The weather, the rainfall, will it be enough? The sunshine hours needed, the right amount of frost to break seed dormancy for some plants. If the wind is too strong, or if the frost is too prolonged, it's too late, all is lost. So perhaps we come to understand that in our lives, and boy do you know this, there are many things we cannot control, although there are many things, yes, we can. I can switch on a light in this country. I can turn a tap. I can speak a word of blessing to a friend. There are many things we can do. But there are many ways, and people say, you have to rely on good fortune, on luck. And that's true in a sense. Circumstances aligning. But this means we have to do everything we do hoping for a good outcome. Outcome For those who live close to the rawness of nature, they tend to know that things aren't in their control, they're not in charge. They know the rawness and the risk, the vulnerability of things. And guess what? Those sorts of people tend to pray more. The Ukraine, the Russian borders, the soldier in a trench, the fishermen out on a wild sea in fear of their lives. What about you? Do you like to be in control, mostly? I know I do. In the good book, we're encouraged to work and to pray. Pray unceasingly. In other words, to unite everything we do with prayer. I think my balance, my life prayer balance, is way out of balance. In John's account that Joe read, The Miraculous Fish, listen, we read that they'd worked hard for an hour? How long have they worked? All night. All night. They put a huge amount of effort in, of physical exertion. And then the sad report, that night they caught nothing. Nothing. In their bewilderment and fear. In those days when Jesus had called them to wait, they'd shrunk back from the call to follow him to become fishers of men. They're off after the fish. But that is the work he called them to. Peter said, I'm going fishing. I know what I'm doing with that. It's my thing. It's what I do best. I've got control there. But he hadn't. And now the question profoundly to you. I wonder if you're working incredibly hard, but find that you're simply getting nowhere, or perhaps even going backwards. And this is the best way to describe it. Putting a ton of effort into things, a ton of effort, and receiving a pound of results. It's painful and frustrating. Or as a church, this church, every church, are we working just too hard, but not close enough in seeking the Lord's presence and his dunamis, his power? The real difference as in the miraculous catch of fish. In that act of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, as the nets strain with all those slippery, silvery fish, he was surely reminding them of his first commission to them. Come, follow me, wait upon me, and I will make you, all of you, men and women, fishers of men and women. In 2001, I attended a conference that focused on the, the Lord's now, not just looking backwards, but his now ministry of healing in the church, into the community. 
I went, and some of you have heard this story, we were very, very painful, this shoulder frozen. It had been for 18 months. I received the physio, I did all the exercises, I'd had soft tissue examination, the skill of professionals, but nothing would shift it. There was lots of skilled, hard work, and it got worse. But in that place I'd come to, the power of God was wonderfully at work. And in that week, I found myself beginning to move more slowly, to slow down inwardly, but physically around the building. It was like, well, I didn't describe it, but like liquid honey, something sweet and wonderful. There was a density in the air. God's glory, as Joe has prayed, had come down in that place. As we sang last week, come down. Oh, love divine. We sing it. We want to experience it by God's graciousness. And I didn't receive my healing. And other people around me were being healed. On the last day of the conference, 3,000 <laughs> had left to return to their own countries and places. And in that moment, just in the last service of worship, I felt a brush on my shoulder. I turned, there was nobody there. An hour into the service, there was another brush on my shoulder and I turned. Somebody was about 10 feet away and I thought perhaps they'd just lost their balance and just touched my shoulder. But they looked as though straight, concentrating, looking forward. An hour on, coming to the end of the service, the whole of this shirt was tugged off my shoulder physically. I turned, there was nobody for about 10 rows back anywhere to be seen. And I tapped the lady on the shoulder in front of me and said, this has happened to me. And she said, gee, I think the Lord is trying to get through to you. Do you know, I did not consider myself worthy to be healed. It was only when the Lord touched me in the physical, beyond my natural rational, I'm always trying to work things out, aren't we all? He touched me powerfully. A power encounter, the like of which I'd never experienced. And it would be a wonderful equipping, a personal revival, a time of refreshment, for me, a new love of the scriptures and through the ministry of the church I returned to, St. John's on the hill, others coming to faith. Wonderfully, a full, instantaneous, 100% healing. I could raise my arm. It was glorious. But there were countless other healings as well. We are wrong to divide life into work, which is our effort. Our effort without the Lord's power and his guidance. But, perhaps it's not all our fault, we are raised, educated, to rely as far as possible on our own work, on our own giftings. And that can be a habit that takes a long time, once we come into faith, to get away from. But we are commanded to wait upon God, to seek his face in prayer, and from that source and center, to take our part in his work that flows from his command. Kingdom work. In the work of prayer and waiting upon the Lord, there is another type of work, working in partnership, in harness. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, asking for his effect. That needs to be in everything we do, not just for Sundays or the quiet time. So if you're laboring, working at something, there's no good outcome. Try praying more. Do a little less striving. Am I speaking to some of you? You alone know. 
That's our business here below. I didn't mean to make it rhyme. <laughs> you might yet be surprised. He comes to you, to us, calls us to join him. The ultimate stranger on the shore, which he was that breakfast, when they didn't recognize who it was at first, they looked across and then somebody said, it's the Lord. I love stranger on the shore. Whenever I hear it, I see Jesus in John 21. He comes to us. Well, at the end of the chapter, we read, now into Pentecost, about 3,000 were added to that day. Many fish were caught. There have been wonderful times of refreshment over the long years of the church, fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit. As believers have stopped their busyness, I've got to do this for the Lord, I've got to do that, and waited on him, knowing that society, your world, my world, our world, is a desperate place with so little hope. Will we wait, wait to be re-equipped to bring the presence of God? John Wesley, the boast of the Anglican Church, surprisingly, an Anglican minister in the 18th century, he had a deep desire to know God's holiness, a desire to bring the gospel amidst a church and a nation that was in many ways far from God. Well, what shall I do, thought John? I'm going to start working at this. And after a long spell of sheer hard work and little fruit, as it were, we worked all night but saw nothing, he came to meet a particular group of other Christians, Moravians, weren't they, Ken, the Moravians? They seemed to glow in their lively worship and witness, and they prayed for him with a laying on of hands. Well, nothing happened that moment, but later, returning to England by ship, there was for John Wesley, later his brother Charles, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon him. And so one of the greatest quotes of church history I felt my heart strangely warmed. It's physical. The presence of the Spirit coursing through him. Wow. Would you like that to be your experience? Pray, come, Holy Spirit, if you do. Well, through a ministry, John Wesley's ministry, empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit, I think he traveled 100,000 miles on horseback, Many hundreds of thousands were added to the Lord's number. The church reborn, a new Methodist movement. The Methodists, as they were called, because they're Method in Mission. Great title. Joe and I were in Lowestoft three weeks ago. In 1921, in times of real social hardship and poverty there, there was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, aptly called the Fisherman's Revival. <laughs> so I discovered this week. Many unbelievers came to the Lord. People outside the church were touched, even without coming into the building. Ken often our prayer meetings, come to the prayer meetings, prayer task force on Tuesday evenings, fortnightly. He talked about the wonderful revival, which occurred between 1949, 1953, in the Hebrides islands of Lewis and Harris, off the far northwestern coast of Scotland. And when you think about it, lowest offs on the margins, the Hebrides are certainly on the off the margins we are off the margin we're not economically important lord loves the margins he often comes there to scandalize those who think they're in the center of power non-believers simply sense the overwhelming presence of god throughout the area some in boats were converted 
They fell into a deep crying of repentance, calling on the name of the Lord. Then they come and had to explain to them what had happened to them. Like Peter does on the day of Pentecost. I think it's better that experience leads theology and theology comes to catch up with what God is doing. Good theology. Well, for me, tracking back, I returned from that healing conference. But the power of God was resting on me. And I say it with all humility because I was weak and still am. But at St. John's, everything changed. Amongst us, there was a greater love of the scriptures, a deepening fellowship in koinonia, a new impetus to the community and outreach. The congregation caught the same blessing of the Holy Spirit. Yes, there were visions and dreams. My beloved Jo was given a vision of what she now knows to be this very room. We were at St. John's and had many years more to serve there. But she saw a room with many people calling out on the name of the Lord and his blessing. People from the community coming in and coming to the front before that cross and laying gifts, symbols of their lives laid down. When we came to worship here five, six years ago, when she came into this upper room, she knew that was the room that God was showing her. So have faith. Be encouraged that this is the place where God has called you to. But he has bigger plans. Not just numerical plans, but those too. But plans to bless, to heal, to save, to lead. At St. John's, people just started turning up, arriving at our services and our meetings, and we increased those because we needed to stay in that wonderful place. But up our drive, I don't know if Rosie remembers it, all sorts of people started coming up and knocking on our door. Very troubled people. People who were in need of the touch, the presence of God. And we prayed for them. People were born again. There were some wonderful testimonies. But as Joe and I prayed for people in our house, you must believe me, that as we prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to come, around the vicarage, a strong and strange wind got up every time we prayed. And this was a long season. And in a sense, it was easier because we knew the presence of God was here upon us.